I believe that the entrepreneurship, the risk-taking that I developed from that early age helped me make the decision and ultimately convince Tina, right. let's try this. What do we have to lose? You know? yeah. um, and boy, was it a great decision. Put aside the, the business experience. If you ever get a chance, and this is a big shout out to any of you listening, yeah. you ever get a chance in your career to have a company sponsor you and your family, go work somewhere internationally. And typically any of the expat deals, they'll pay yeah. at least housing and they'll probably pay schooling if you, if, you, if you play your cards right. It's a great experience. Yeah. Welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. My name is Chris Thompson, your host of the show and the head coach of the Student Works Management Program. This is a show dedicated to young and ambitious entrepreneurs and ultimately the leaders of tomorrow. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring interview or message to help you create the future you know you deserve. Let's get started. Okay, leaders. We have an amazing podcast uh, with Andrew Gon. Andrew Gon is the chief executive officer of Sport Tech PLC. He spent most of his career really in the gaming and technology space, literally right across the world, being a managing director and then uh, CEO of a number of organizations. And uh, we just had a really, really fantastic conversation about what it takes to build a career the types of decisions you know you made some of the setbacks he's had and then now what he's interested in doing you know in his mid 50s looking forward really make a difference in the world using some really really amazing agricultural uh, science breakthroughs from the University of Guelph and uh, I know you're going to love the pod really really great conversation and uh, thanks so much for joining me on the leaders of tomorrow podcast and if you know any amazing young leaders who would like a fantastic experience developing themselves as leaders, you know, please uh, send me an email at chris at leaderspodcast.ca. You can send and ask them to go apply, leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. We are in the, in the, you know, starting our recruiting process for the season of 2021. And uh, we are going to have our best year ever that year. So if you want to be part of it or know somebody who wants to be part of it, please assist us. Thanks so much. Have a fantastic day. Well, Andrew, really, really excited to have you on the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me uh, to chat with you, Chris, today. Uh, yeah. Discussion. No, it's awesome. It's awesome. So, uh, you know, thinking back, actually, Andrew, just to sort of place you for our for our young leaders, uh, you know, before you join join Student Works, you know, how would you describe yourself? You know, uh, what was your background? So, I joined in 1987, and I was with Student Works for five summers. So, yeah. I think that puts me in the the uh, long long standing wily veteran category. <laughs> yes, uh, putting aside my, my veteran age now, but uh, no. So, but prior to uh, you know joining Student Works and, and um, having this great experience, I was really a kid that was really focused on athletics. Um, I would say I was a I was a actually a very accomplished ref soccer player. In fact, yeah. uh, I was invited onto the Ontario provincial team when I was sixteen or so. Right. So. And on top of that, I, in the winters, I was playing double A rep hockey for Thornhill. So I okay. was 
frankly, between playing high school hockey and soccer and, and, the, and the, the two rep sides of soccer and hockey, I, I devoted a lot of my time to, <laughs> to, to athletics and, and For sure. sport. Uh, and that was my thing. I was a fairly introverted, I would say, shy kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm also a child of a family of nine children. Good Irish Catholic family uh, out of Thornhill, where I principally grew up. But um, yeah, I was I was number six on the on the to- on the on the poll, so to speak. Um, fighting, fighting for food at the table and uh, an opportunity to talk. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We were uh, we we were a family of uh, you know modest means. My my yeah. father was an immigrant from, from England. My mom and dad, and uh, you know he worked hard. He was in real estate, residential real estate, but he he provided for all of us very well at the end of the day. But yeah, it wasn't. Uh, yeah, you have to kind of uh, you have to look out for yourself. Um, yeah, take care of yourself. But you had you had lots of siblings, obviously, and I had two older brothers and six sisters, actually, three above, three below. But anyway, so I was I was mostly focused on my my sport. That was my that was my thing. I was convinced I was going to be a pro first hockey player, but then when I realized I was actually better at soccer, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, relatively speaking to to friends around me, um, soccer was going to be my thing. Right. Football, as they call it, or most parts of the world. I was okay in school. I was typically, you know, teachers would say I was an underachiever. And, and right. Not enough. But looking back, my excuse is I was, I was more devoted to sport. Than that, right. Than that maybe happened. On top of that, I mean, I was, I was a hardworking kid. You have to be in a family that size. I was, I had jobs, you know, from the age of 12 or 13, making, you know, whatever I could here and there. And I won't bore you with all the, yeah, exactly. But they, some of those jobs were precursors to to sort of the, to the entrepreneurial side of uh, student work, for sure. Yeah. Including some driveway sealing that that uh, I took over from my older brothers just I think the summer before I, I I launched into student works. Right. So yeah, no, I was a kid that uh, that was my thing, sport, and, and um, yeah. You know, and and you know, Andrew and I had the opportunity to work directly together, which was which was a real treat. And we've always had a, a fantastic relationship. And so, so to jump over uh, an incredible student works career, uh, went to Cornell, went to, went to law school. And, you know, one of the things we always ask is about setbacks and mistakes and, and, and errors right off the bat in your career, you had a big setback, you know, can you describe what happened and what you learned from that? I did. Yeah. Um, so after the five summers of, of success with student works, um, including international manager of the year at one point, yeah. I think it was 88. Yeah. I felt fairly invincible. Um, mm-hmm. the net income, um, from, you know, significant 400,000 plus sales years. I was doing condominium industrial projects too. We maybe we'll come to that in a bit. So I was able to crank up high volume output of sales, uh, yeah. particularly in the, in the years three, four, five, but, um, yeah, so doing very well amassing quite a bit of uh capital and money um and i just felt i was destined to do to do another entrepreneurial thing so i i i invested in or became a um subway sandwich franchisee yeah and the reason i did that just as an aside was when i was at cornell university down in ithaca new york that's right there was a subway in yeah. that, that came into the town and i went in and i had a sub and i went wow this is so much better than mr submarine yes which is my reference point yeah they had just started to come to Canada at the time. Remember, this this is this would be 1987, 88. So I said, if I ever if I ever get a chance, I I'm gonna you know try and you know acquire one of those and and ultimately you know have several to many mm-hmm. franchises. And, and obviously, I'd, I'd learned a ton from the franchise model of Student Works. Yeah, 
success. So I was I was content that I could become a, a multiple unit Subway sandwich franchisee. So I bought, I invested in and bought and became a franchisee while I was in law school, which yeah. was immediately following um, Cornell. I went to Queens Law back here in Canada, Queens Queens Law School. So the reality was uh, didn't have a great location. It was at uh, it was in the, in the GTA. It was uh, at the Peel and uh, Finch area. Um, high rent. Mm-hmm. I actually turned down a great location because that's that. the way it worked. They gave you. Kind of went up the list and you signed up to be a franchisee and the, and the, the area agent would find the locations and then make you the offer if you're at the top of the list so i turned down dufferin and uh, king street which is just outside the cne big mistake yeah for about and half half the rent i remember you turned down the u of t one as well i remember telling yeah, me yeah so no and the reason was my sister because uh, i was off at law school in kingston and one of my sisters uh, had agreed to be the manager right but she lived up in uh, in York Region in the area right. where, where I've I sort of grown up. And um, so the key was, the condition was, she said, you had to give me a location that I could get to in 15, 20 minutes. And so so downtown was off the board, unfortunately. Right. But anyway, so I had I had a, a challenge location in terms of foot flow and traffic. And uh, and then rent was very high, for the big fixed cost in the business. Right. So the bottom line is I ran, I had the franchise for just under two years. And it was pretty much while I was in law school as well, which which made it, you know, stressful for the challenge. Yeah. Uh, was, uh, obviously trying to, uh, you know, get through law school and do well there and et cetera. But so, no, and it, I had to give the franchise back to the franchisor. So right. lost some money, uh, but thankfully through, through structuring and, and the way some of the, the loan program was set up through uh, the federal government at the time, I, I was able to get out of it without much, you know, scathe. Um, right. But, you know, it, it really taught me uh, the lesson on that. After coming off the success, the five-year success round of student work, it taught me that uh, an early lesson, which is, you know, and you see it a lot with entrepreneurs and uh, people that start businesses, you can have success and you can have failure. Right? Yeah. And, and, and so it was, it was actually a really good framing because I think it knocked me down a few pegs. And yeah. it, it also, I you know, there was just some certain other elements of, that business from a financial perspective uh, that weren't in the student works model that, uh, you know, things like the fixed cost component of having, having to rent the unit and stuff like that. Yeah. Important yeah. Lesson. So, and so I got through that and out of that before I, I, I you know, slotted off on my, let's say business corporate gaming management career, but no, it was, um, so my kids always laugh because these, uh, I have two kids now growing up 25 year olds, uh, twins, boy and girl, but, Whenever uh, we, there's always running jokes about Subway, <laughs> but I, uh, I don't eat them. <laughs> I don't eat them. No, I still still doesn't taste quite as good as the first one at Ithaca. So yeah, and it's just a great lesson, you know. Actually, before Andrew and I were on the podcast, we were talking about someone. You know, you're you're not going to win all the time. No. It's not just you know that you're a great leader, you're a great coach, you're a great salesperson, you're you're a great decision maker, and all those things are true of Andrew and doesn't mean you're going to win all the time. So that location decision cost Andrew hundreds of thousands of dollars for sure. Right. Yeah. And, and again, that, okay, that's a lesson because it didn't work for you. It didn't allow you to scale, you know, and in hindsight, you saw, you, you saw it, but at the time you did obviously, or you wouldn't have done the, wouldn't have done the deal. Yeah. So, right. but, uh, but one other fascinating thing to me, Andrew, about your career is you went to law school. Okay. So, so we have a lot of our, our leaders 
you know, thinking about law as a career. And you very clearly and quickly said, okay, I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to article. So I get called to the bar and then I'm going to move. So how do you look at the, you know, deciding about, hey, I'm going to become a lawyer as a full-time gig, or I'm going to go and use my my law as a way to do business really well? Yeah, excellent question, Chris. Um, it's not an easy answer. And I, I, I'll tell you my story, but I don't sure. want anyone listening in who's pursuing law or thinking of law or in law school to say, you know, this is this is the guidebook. But I'll, I'll share, obviously, my story and sure. maybe some relevance. I mean, backing up, I think I still think law is, is a great, you know, academic pursuit. I think yeah. there's things uh, that if you don't end up becoming a practicing lawyer, I know uh, throughout my career, uh, you know, that background and training has helped and it helps, you know, the approach to thinking. And it's it's helped a lot in my in my business career, uh, executive management career. Yeah. So what what happened was I, yeah, articled at, at a fairly well-known Bay Street firm. Um, I wasn't hired back. It was it was sort of low hire ratios in that time. The economy wasn't great in the early 90s. Right. And, and I was also I quickly had figured out that I wasn't going to be one of those articling students that just burned the midnight oil and worked 24 hour stints for the chances of hire back were low. But I enjoyed the year nonetheless and got to know several of the, the firm uh, lawyers. Of course, with my sport kind of uh, honor, I think I was in fact, I was running the firm. Um, what do you call it? Uh, you know. NHL hockey pool and uh, okay. so I was <laughs> I would get out golfing a lot too with a lot of the senior partners would which would a lot of the articling students off as well <laughs> but, but anyway so I, did, I actually did practice law following I got I found a firm in Markham a small firm okay. and I was I was working in kind of general business corporate law for probably eighteen months this was after okay. I was called to the bar I was called to the bar in ninety three did my articles right after law school finishing in ninety one. So I went right into practicing law and I was married at the time, hadn't had my, hadn't had children, but, you know, life was unfolding and, you know, I, I was really longing the entrepreneurial business side. And not that I was waking up questioning why I went to law school. I wasn't, but right. I think, you know, subliminally or subconsciously, I knew that, you know, maybe I should be looking for something in addition to, or otherwise. So as fate would have it, I got an opportunity to go work at, Woodbine racetrack. And this is a funny story. I mean, I had never been to a horse racetrack in my life. Yeah. I think I had been once actually, in truth, in Florida. Because my 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 wife and my in-laws have a, a family property down in Florida. So we we would typically go down once a year, the Fort Lauderdale area. But and I went to the as a lark, I went, I went out to see the it was a harness racetrack called yep. Pompano. That was the, I'd never been to Woodbine Racetrack. I used to watch like the Kentucky Derby as a kid because sure. it was a big sporting event on yeah. TV and stuff. But really, I had no background in horse racing or gambling. I wasn't a guy that, you know, gambled much. Yeah, I played the odd bit of poker with friends and stuff. But I had an opportunity to go um, join Woodbine. Um, and I mm -hmm. went out to, to the uh, premises. It was a summer day. And I sat in the grandstands and I was watching the horses work out, as they call it. Um, or breeze and I just I, I was like this is cool like and I and I sort of went wait this is sport this is sport you know it's equine athlete yeah um, obviously I'm a sport guy and I'm like I think I, I think this could be fun to try this out and I also had the, the confidence and this is something that student works really helps build I had the confidence to try something and if it didn't work out I'd go back and be a lawyer I wasn't gonna I wasn't yeah. gonna lose being a lawyer so anyways I joined Woodbine's management team not as a lawyer not as an in-house lawyer Frankly, I didn't have enough 
you know, experience to, and they weren't looking for that. They were looking for more of a entrepreneur. Uh, yeah, an entrepreneur. They were trying to make some changes and go into some new parts of, of, of business for the, for the company. Frankly, more into the electronic uh, sale of, of horse racing bets on over TV and telephone and, and soon to be internet. So yeah, I joined. I joined them in um, the outset or the end back in '94. Uh, and it was, it, and then it's led to then it, that led to effectively a 25 year run career in horse racing and regulated gambling, which was six, which included seven years at Woodbine. Uh, and mm-hmm. I worked my way up to be sort of the head of corporate business development, uh, working working directly with the CEO, who's a great guy and still a mentor and friend of mine. This guy named David Wilmot, one of the top guys in Canadian horse racing, and his family's uh, well known. Um, but and he was a lawyer too, ironically. I think that's one of the reasons we. We bonded because right. uh, he also was a lawyer that really wasn't a lawyer, well, that, but uh, right. but he he was uh, and he knew a ton about horse racing because he had his family had been in it and owned prominent uh, thoroughbred racehorses and um, but David uh, David was great and uh, and I worked there for seven years and then uh, can I keep jumping over and tell you that why don't you keep the, like one of the things is just just to share. Like there's so many fascinating things that, that Andrew's done and we don't want to be too long. Like, uh, you know, like it's yeah. really incredible what they transformed at the Ontario jockey club to Woodbine entertainment, just massive. You can go read about it. Like it really is incredible. Yeah. The, the growth, the development, uh, transformed an entire industry. And, uh, you know, Andrew also worked closely with Nick Eves, uh, who is one of our former alumni, one of the early podcasts in, you know, the senior management team. And, but yeah, then, then you moved to Magda. I remember that. And Frank Strong. Yeah, then I moved to Magda. And before I uh, divert into that discussion, so to go back to the question, actually, which yeah. was, you know, go to law school, become a lawyer, and then you're suddenly in this other line of business. So the, the general statement uh, or message I have to any of you listening uh, that, are, that are in this track, don't see anything, don't see law and the pursuit of law as, a, as an academia and a, and a degree as anything but positive, because right. it is. Mm-hmm. And you'll learn a ton, uh, whether you practice law or not. Yeah, I think like any industry or area of uh, education, you know, it's always it can be dependent on when you come out. Uh, yes, yes, with your it's degree true. And yeah. the market conditions, and you have to be cognizant of that. And you may come out in a time where careers in law are, you know, fantastic, or you may come in a in a, in a very overcrowded marketplace. And if you if you feel one thing, I will say because this is relevant to this last point. If you feel it's going to be a tough, tough go to be a lawyer and, and work in the sort of environment, firm or company that, that you envision, that the law degree used outside of that, I think, has great cachet. So when I joined Woodbine, yeah. the fact that I would sit around the management table as a young, young manager and really be around the senior management table full of people that were much older in those cases, other than Nick, who was my yeah, colleague. Exactly. We uh, people would go. Oh, they all knew Andrew was a lawyer. Yeah. Frankly, they they gave me way too much value for that. I played that smartly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, ironically, I felt I felt more value for the degree and the education uh, when I left the practice of law because when you're in the practice of law, I'd say there's, there's a lot of lawyers. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, it, uh, it's a competitive uh, environment. You know? Very competitive. And the one thing as well to jump on, Andrew, is is I loved as well just highlighting, you know, when the market expands, when the market constricts. And now we're mm-hmm. in a time where where the market's constricting and some opportunities are just not as good. Some opportunities are better. And that means yeah. you need to think entrepreneurially or just strategically to say, oh, here's an opportunity. Andrew found a growth opportunity 
you know, a really smart leadership team that was going to really develop in a, a, a part of the business. It was a sleepy, stodgy industry, not speaking ill of anybody. And then totally transformed over decades and yes. in the whole gaming gaming industry and that decision really set up your career yeah to move there yeah and of course the results you got you know so it's not just the decision and the decision let me let me come back to student works this is 100 the truth and how i feel about it and it's it's very very important you know decisions when you have uh, a chance that are kind of out of the box and you know people i can remember my father-in-law saying what you're gonna go leave being a lawyer to be to work what at Woodbine and and I would I would just say look trust me I'm I'm good with it I'm yeah, yeah. confident I can make this work you know and yeah. don't worry if it doesn't work I'll come back and be a lawyer yeah but there's no question that student works and being the entrepreneur for those five years gave me the confidence to try something and take a risk yeah you know a calculated risk yeah and I think uh, and I and I'll and I'll cover this off as at, at a couple other stops on my career and family journey as we go forward in the discussion but yeah. That's a common theme. You, uh, that's an invaluable part, and I think it's one of the intangibles of of being a young entrepreneur and being in an organization like Student Works that uh, you just can't under under um, emphasize how uh, valuable that is. To, and a lot, and a lot of people just don't get that opportunity, and then yeah. they they kind of live a, a risk free life, and they and they maybe they end up with regrets. I I definitely don't have any regrets. Uh, <laughs> exactly. At this point. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been a fun, uh, you know, good ride all the way. Yeah, exactly. And that's a theme. That's a theme that that our leaders listening hear about. You know, it's like you know, not living muted, take taking a you know roll of the dice. Not always does it work out, but 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 yeah. especially for people, you know. So early roll didn't work. You know, uh, early rolls worked. You know, subway didn't work. Now this is working. So what yeah. was what was next for you, Andrew? So yeah, so then I was at Woodbine for seven years. I was actually in line to be probably the future. Leader, it was between Nick and I, and Nick. Yeah, knows exactly. Him. Yeah, and Nick was Nick's a terrific guy, as you guys probably know. Anyone listening yes. to his podcast, he's done extremely well. And uh, but, anyways, we were trying to take the company public. We were it still is a not for profit part class two corporation, and we wanted to go public. And we had a we were working with Scotia Capital at the time, and I led that that side of the business development. And we had a we had a use of proceeds. We were we were going to do an IPO and sell down thirty percent of company to the public market right and and there was some pushback from some of the older guard not the ceo who again who, who became a really good mentor and friend of mine david he was he was on board as was nick but we pulled back at the last minute didn't go public with it it was also built on the fact that all the racetracks in ontario horse racetracks were had cut a contract with the ontario government and we're going to be full of slot machines and making uh, a lot of money a lot of money slot machines that were yeah. going to be housed at the racetracks including Woodbine and Mohawk, which Woodbine also owned. So there was a there was a significant ramp up in uh, in revenue and profit flows to the company, and that's why the story to go public. Anyways, we didn't go public, which didn't sit well with me because right. I was now sort of early thirties. I was looking to have a, a chunk of equity in it, which you wouldn't get in the uh, in the not non profit uh, class two corporate structure. Woodbine at the time, you know, were paid reasonably well and all that, but then it was fun and it was a great ride. But so I. I Ironically, not ironically, but as as fate would have it, um, company uh, owned by Frank Stronach, a maverick Canadian industrialist, uh, self-made Ottawa entrepreneur. Yeah, for sure. If you, if any of you don't know the story of Frank Stronach, just Google it and you'll. you'll it's incredible. It quickly. Yeah. But uh, he was taking his auto parts uh, empire that he had built up as a public company, and he was starting to buy horse racetracks 
uh, in the U.S., big ones, famous ones, Santa Anita, Gulfstream Park, Pimlico, where they run the second leg of the Kentucky uh, U.S. Triple Crown, Baltimore. And they were they were assembling a crack corporate team of, uh, you know, professional managers to run all these properties and assets out of Aurora, Ontario. I live in Richmond Hill. Yeah. Live today and I did at the time. Still, still the same, the same place that 25 years now. Um, so they recruited me to come you know, head up their business development activities because they also wanted to impart uh, you know, new media strategies across the, the ownership of the, of the content, which is, I say content, it's, you know, horse racing and right. running horse races and putting it up on closed circuit television, internet, taking bets and all that. So and that's, that's why I'd really led the initiatives at Woodbine on addition to some of the corporate development activities. So I left Woodbine and went to work for Frank Stronach or the company called Magna Entertainment Corp. MEC. It was listed on the TSX and NYX. And I, and you know, principally I left because it, as part of the deal structure and, and, and package, I had equity. I had, mm-hmm. I had stock options in, in the company, which I wanted. They, you know, the comp was increased and all that. So I went over there and I, and it was about three years I was with them. It was it was it was a fun ride. I got to go and start flying around in the corporate Magna Jet and go to see all the properties in the U.S. and California. We owned two big race, three racetracks in California, down in Florida, you know, Maryland. Um, we had other properties and businesses. wasn't a wasn't a real one. Was not a well-run company because um, the CEO of the of the business I was an executive vice president reporting to the CEO. He just couldn't control Frank, who was the chairman, and right. Frank was just making really irrational investments and decisions. Uh, but again, if you, if you want a whole other uh, you know history lesson on, on Canadian entrepreneurialism, you know, spend some time reading about Frank. And yeah, unfortunately, that that family's now in a massive uh, bad you know bad loss blood lawsuit. Daughter and the, yeah, and the, and the father who's now in his late eighties. But it was it was it was a great it was great fun, and I actually had the. The pleasure uh, to spend some time with Frank on some of these trips and get to know him a bit, and mm-hmm. you know, he's again, you can you can learn a lot from being around other, you know, su- successful entrepreneurs, which there's no question Frank was in the auto in the auto parts business. That is, that yeah, Magna International today again is one of the biggest auto parts suppliers in the world, and has been for decades. Yeah, yeah. Frank sold his interests out of that about ten years ago, but uh, he's a, he's you know the family's worth billions as a result of that, but. Uh, so I was with Magna, and um, that was a great stint. Didn't work out. I was uh, I crossed some paths with again some of the older guard, and and there was one guy in particular who just wanted to see me out. So that didn't work out. I was let go from Magna, but because of the legal training and background, I had a great contract. I, I didn't leave Woodbine without negotiating a perfect contract. So I walked away with a good pile of loot, which was good. It's always if there's a, there's there's a there's a shout out lesson to all of you if you're. If you're recruited into a company um, and you have any leverage, make sure you spend a few bucks, get an employment lawyer. You know, make sure you get a you know a good good contract that will will protect you uh, should it not work out. Yeah, and also as well with Magna, they had a bad reputation of hiring great great execs and firing and firing them. them. Yeah, <laughs> and paying them a lot of money they when they fired them. So yeah, yeah so the- but no, it was still a great you know epilogue in the um or chapter in the in the in the career because i went from sort of just the canadian perspective of horse racing and then right. i was seeing really the u.s and a bit of the global component of because horse racing and, and betting on horse racing is a global is a global pursuit um and i do mean global i mean it's yeah. huge in asia it's huge in europe yeah 
uh, even in, in the South America as Latin America. Anyways, so left Magna. I had a few months uh, of downtime, not many. And I was actually, I was looking to do something entrepreneurial. I was uh-huh. actually back with the Scotia Capital Boys that we almost, that I'd worked with extensively on trying to take Woodbine public. And they were big supporters of mine. So we were actually looking at putting together um, an income trust. Because if you remember, there's some more Canadian corporate history, but income trusts, which are, which are now kind of, they're they're no longer legal. I think they've been legislated. If you had, if you had high cash flowing businesses, you could create, it was actually a publicly, it was a public security. We were going to put together an income trust and buy a bunch of the smaller racetracks in Ontario that had these slot machines, which are all thrown off massive amounts of revenue and profit flow. Go and buy them at reasonable multiples, compile them all into one big platform and then uh, and take it out as an income trust. Right. Because that, that was the model. If you had steady cash flowing, profit flowing, dividend paying businesses. Yeah. Perfect for an income trust. So yeah, it was great. I had I actually had a turn sheet signed from uh, Omer's Venture Capital. Uh, Scotia Capital guys were, and then, but in the middle of all that, this company called Scientific Games Corporation, which is, uh, Nasdaq listed a uh, huge gaming company, gaming technology supply company, both for lottery and horse racing around the world. They, their CEO, who was a Torontonian, but he was he lived in New York. Great guys, and they were the supplier of the of the, the technology to to Woodbine Racetrack and to many of the Magna tracks, MEC tracks. So I got to know them very well. The CEO right. and the uh, the operating president, another fellow named uh, Brooks Pierce. And they really liked me and and they saw me as one of the sort of the bright young stars in the industry. And they asked me to come uh, and, and join them. Right. But the condition was their businesses in Europe uh, on the horse racing technology side were a mess. So they needed me to move from Toronto to, to London or sorry, to, to Europe and set up shop and oversee a diverse uh, group of smaller companies one in germany one in holland one in france uh and and customers throughout many parts of europe so i initially said no because i you know we were we were parents of twins who were uh, at that time were six or seven seven or eight and they were yeah they were no they were grade three so young family and we were all settled in in our life and and my my wife tina she uh, i i put the i put the idea in front of her and she said no it's just not so I let it go because I didn't I certainly didn't want to force the family, but really yeah. Tina, to leave a comfortable environment uh, here in in in, in, the, in the York region area where her family lives and my family lived and we lived in Richmond Hall. But um, and I was working on this income trust, you know, platform startup and right. making progress. But one day, to Tina's full credit, she came back and said, Andrew, is that is that opportunity? Because I said if we do it, I I've talked to the CEO of the company and they'll let us live in England, in London. Right. Go over and, you know, the company's going to pay for our housing and the kids yeah. schooling. And yeah. So she came back and she said, you know, is that still on the table? Uh, going in? And I said, I think it is. Let me talk to them. So I reached back to uh, Lauren and Brooks. And this was probably eight weeks have gone by since yeah. they first floated the idea. And anyways, long story short. You know, three months later, we were living in England for four years Super cool. uh, in London, no yeah. less. a very beautiful part of London, uh, the suburbs called Surrey. And I kind of worked from my home office, but I traveled extensively around Europe because Heathrow Airport's only 15 minutes door to door. And I managed this group of businesses uh, uh, that Scientific Games uh, owned, which was right. a relatively small part. Of they were a $3 billion 
market cap company US. Right. You know, probably the revenues back then were five or 600 million. My business unit handled about 40 or 50 million US, but it was a, it was a complex group of businesses because all, all the businesses, the one in Holland, Germany, France, it all had like, you know, 60, 80, oh, even in Ireland, we had a business in Ireland, of course. So I had all these sort of, you know, satellite businesses that did the same thing, sold the technology to these horse race tracks in all these countries. And I managed it, which was great. So I got, I got exposure to being kind of a divisional president. They yeah. call them managing directors in Europe. Right. Obviously accountable to the public company, had to do quarterly reports back in our, in the New York city office with Lauren and, and Yang. Uh, Gang. So I, I got into the mode of because even though MEC Mag the Magnuson that's public company, to be honest, it was run like a like a private. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. We were masquerading in, in reality as a public company. Yeah, if you follow me. Whereas Scientific Games was a public company for sure. Both of them were, but Scientific Games actually had to perform like a public company. And yeah, there's a reporting requirement and, uh, and governance and stuff. So it was great. I I was with Sci Games for four years. Well, actually, no, I went over. So let me digress. So the reason I, I went to Europe in part, and this goes back to student works, and this is the theme. I believe that the entrepreneurship, the risk-taking that I developed from that early age helped me make the decision and ultimately convince Tina, right. let's try this. What do we have to lose? You know? Yeah. Um, and boy, was it a great decision. Put aside the, the business experience. If you ever get a chance, and this is a big shout out to any of you listening. Yeah. You ever get a chance in your career to have a company sponsor you and your family, go work somewhere internationally. And typically any of the expat deals, they'll pay yeah. at least housing and they'll probably pay schooling. If you, if you, if you play your cards, right. It's a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. We had such a terrific family and my kids were, uh, well, they were, they were there for the grades, you know, middle school, I guess you'd say yeah. five, six, seven, eight leading up to high school. Yeah. Obviously, we travel. Not obviously, we did. We traveled a ton across Europe as a family. Yeah. Because when you're in London, you can hop Just on these anywhere. flights. Yeah. I mean, I won't bore you with it, but there isn't probably a, a country in Europe that my kids didn't see at that age. You know, uh, Germany, France, obviously a lot. Spain, Italy. Yeah. Uh, my wife's family is uh, Italian Canadian, so it was great. We could go back to Italy and visit towns where both my mother-in-law and father-in-law grew up. Yeah, they emigrated to Canada from Italy, so we had that family. I still had some family in England because that's, if you recall, that's I told you where my dad, mom, and dad came from. So yeah, we had I had this tremendous uh, four year experience. Could have gone longer, to be honest. The reason mm -hmm. we came back was the company was up for sale, or my division was up for sale within Sci Games. It had, it had grown uh, its lottery business so significantly that horse racing was quite a. It was like a corporate orphan. Right. So they were looking to divest out of horse racing technology. So my division and the U.S. counterpart division was up for sale. I was concerned that uh, if I didn't get back and start my kids in high school, like at grade nine, that they could have a convoluted high school experience. And for sure, you know, new ownership. And typically, if if you get taken out, uh, you know, the, the, the acquiring companies, they make you stay. Put, yeah. Or or they they have their own management or they cut company. you out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So actually, it was my decision. The company wanted me to stay longer or, or stay on. Um, and uh, anyways, two years, it, it ended up being two years later that the businesses were sold to Sportech, right. which was a London-listed public company. In, in England, they call the public companies PLCs, right. public, public Limited Corporation. So this, this company, Sportech, which was in gaming, mm. was in soccer betting, uh, right. football, as they call it in, yeah. in Europe. 
Greenland. They, uh, well, I knew the CEO uh, quite well, and I convinced him to take a run at buying the businesses from Psy Games, which he did in the end. So I ended up working for Sportech uh, up until a year ago. Right. I eventually became the CEO of Sportech, the public company. In the last year and a bit, I was on the board for the last three or four years as well. So I've, yeah, I've, I've, and then that was a great experience too. So really, from Psy Games and moving to, to, to London, which is 2004, through to finishing working in at Sportech, which was last year, 19, I did a 15 year stint really in the same business. It just changed, changed only. Yes, yeah. And I ultimately took over not not just running Europe, but all the North American international business, and then and Sportech was the owner of all that. Uh, and then I took over being the CEO of Sportech as a public company. So I guess you could say I've run the full gamut of, of yeah. corporate experience. Hey, leaders. I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. Since we started this podcast, every person you've heard from has been one of the incredible alumni of the Student Works Management Program. In large part, that's how I got to meet these amazing people and participate in their development. Starting now, and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast, interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down the path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. Now back to the episode. I would have probably wanted to put a few more years in as Sportech CEO, but the, the reality is, and the truth is, this, uh, the chairman of the, of the company, the chairman of the board, uh, a UK person, uh, and I were constantly, well, we, were, we weren't seeing things strategically. And he had asked me to be the CEO and I had accepted. And then I wasn't getting the support of the direction I wanted to take the company, which was to really make it a dual listed company and bring it and have it listed here on the TSX and raise some fresh capital and change the shareholder base. Right. For reasons I, I won't bore the podcast with, I, I couldn't convince him, the chairman. Right. That it was the right that. strategy. And at that point, I was like, no, nah, I've got better things to do. And it was a good run. And I was sort of burnt out. The other thing I have to tell you about the career is I did in, in those 15 years of Psy Games through the sport deck, I've been to the UK and back like a hundred times on planes. That's what I was going to ask you about, Andrew, is just to share with our leaders. I hear so often, oh, I'd love to do business travel. Mm. And certainly the way you talked about it is, is and I got you highlighted, hey, if I get a chance to move my family someplace yeah. and they're covering it, wow, I can, I can pocket some money, I can get a base and those are great years, et cetera. But the ongoing travel, what sort of a wear and tear is that on you personally and your family and relationships and stuff? Yeah, it's a huge issue and don't underestimate it. Yeah. Um, Look, I'm in reality, I'm not proud of making that statement 100 yeah. transatlantic trips in 15 years or so, because obviously from a carbon carbon footprint perspective, that's horrible. But yeah, it was the job. It was how I had to, um, you know, run my. So it's not it's not great. Like, yeah, there are parts, you know, if you can get your company uh, and, and obviously what we're going through is probably going to change all this dramatically, I would think, uh, expect. But. You know, there there are perks, obviously, of if you particularly if, if if you can if your company's gonna allow you to, you know, fly at the front of the bus. Right. And 
you're staying in reasonably nice hotels and you have an expense account. That's all great, but it wears thin. Um, it does. And it's tough on your family. Uh, yeah. Obviously the four years when we were together in England, living as a family unit, that was phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and I'd be home. Uh, I, I could do, I could literally hop on a plane some mornings out of Heathrow, get up to Germany or Holland, spend, spend a long day and get back that night or yeah. I'd, I'd do an overnight. So yeah. there was the period, however, where when I moved back to Canada after the four years in England with, with scientific games before they sold the sport tech, there was almost two years where I was still running the European business from Toronto. Yeah. And in that scenario, it was looking back, it was really you know, almost insane in the sense that I would get on a plane every other week, almost on a Sunday night, fly over the pond, land in London, spend my whole week working away from my family, obviously. Yeah. And then come back Friday on a long flight, eight hour flight back, get back, be totally jet lagged, feel like crap. Yeah. And then try and, you know, act like I was like everything's fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm totally engaged. Uh, Don't which, worry. Which, uh, and, <laughs> and Tina's a very smart woman. She, so it, it, it took its toll. Um, but thankfully, um, didn't cost me, uh, my family. Um, uh, but no, it's tough. Uh, so yeah. be careful on that front. It, which is why, again, if you get a chance to get all of your family moved somewhere, yeah. Do your job from that no. location. Yeah. And if you have to do business travel from that location for a day or a few, yeah. that's fine. I mean, that's going to happen in most careers. Again, who knows going forward? Uh, we've all, we're all learning that this for sure we're working virtually and getting on planes is probably overstated and overdone, but, but at some point, business travel will return to some. We'll see. And because one of the things as well is, is that one of the problems about getting really good is, you know, Andrew, obviously you were one of the leading experts in, you know, gaming and, mm -hmm. you know, horse racing and gaming in that space. So when anytime you get really good, it's, it's the city can't hold you, Yeah, you know, and then you got to get out like consultants. And, and so this is a common theme. And so to me, one of the most important things, and I'm, and I, and I'm, I know you, you and Tina have had a great relationship, you know, for a long, long time is you got to communicate about it. You got to yeah. talk about it. You got to choose it together. So, okay, how much travel is okay? Well, mm -hmm. how can we make this work? And okay, well, maybe we just got to say stop, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and so that it's, it's choosing consistently because there, there, again, there's a financial opportunity that gets turned down if you say no. Uh, yeah. And on the other hand, eventually, maybe that's the, the, the right call. Yeah, no, well stated. And in fact, when I decided to leave Sportech, uh, and it was my decision, I wasn't let go. I wasn't pushed out. I, I yeah. went to the chairman and said, "Look, it's not working. Let's just let's just work out a deal." And so we had it. We had I had a, again a good contract, and we he was he was very honorable about it. And mm -hmm. Took care of me, and I just I just didn't want to. And I could tell he wanted to really be the CEO at, at the end of the day as well, right? Chairman, which which he which he is now, by the way. <laughs> But yeah, the big the big component behind all that was uh, Tina knew I wasn't happy, and I knew she wasn't happy about the ongoing travel and the yeah. stress. And it was just like, all right, we've we've done well here. You've put up with this far too long. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to exit stage left and just roll roll it back and start relaxing. And, yeah, and which is what we've done. It's been it was the right decision, big time. And you're in a really neat spot of your life. Obviously, you've saved a bunch of money. You've got assets. And and now it's like, you know, what's next? And how, how are you starting to frame that? And what are you looking at, Andrew? That that sort of thing. And it's a it's, yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. What I decided to do uh, after stepping down from the sport tech role, which was last March, March of 19, I wanted to take at least six, nine months and just do nothing and mm -hmm. really focus on getting healthy again. And of course, summer was coming up and I had become a, a bit of a road bike fanatic in the last few years leading up to that. So I 
upped my road biking um, uh, goals and, and, and kilometers and, and uh, started golfing a bit more. I'm a member at a golf club nearby and just kind of like, yeah, relaxing and not getting up to a thousand emails, not a thousand emails, but a lot of emails as, as anyone yes. would know what we're in and issues, et cetera. So they did that. And then, um, you know, towards the, the fall of last year, the autumn, I was starting to look at things and what, and fundamentally what I wanted to do was not just jump back into gaming. I, I kind of really felt like the chapter had closed and, right. I, and it had been a great run and, and I don't want anyone listening who is still in gaming or horse racing to misinterpret what I'm saying. The, the industry and the ride was great. And I'm very grateful for, for all of the components and the people I've, I've met dealt with along the way and customers, fellow managers. But the one thing about the business and the industry, I didn't really feel like, you know, when they, when they lay me to rest, hopefully quite a ways down the road. Yes. I don't think, you know, being a gaming executive is really going to check the box of social contribution. So right. I really feel like in this last chapter, and I feel like I'm my final third, let's say, of my career. Sure. Uh, this is the chance to do something that is uh, that I really choose. So actually, inter- interesting that the first opportunity that came across my desk through some uh, some banker friends of mine in Toronto was a chance to be involved in a uh, agricultural science business. Right. That, which I'm pursuing now, um, and it's basically um, the business is not named because we're still formulating the company but the company has a license or will have a license that's negotiated and all set to go with the university of guelph which uh most people would know is a is canada's leading ag science university exactly. science yeah and they've developed a product that slows the ripening of fruit and vegetables over through their scientists and professors scientists and it's patent it's under patent uh doesn't have a lot of patent shelf life left uh just about four years which isn't great but Technology is great. It's worked. It's proven on a number of soft fruits in particular to really slow down ripening, which is important because that allows the end farmer through to wholesale, through to distribution to get fruit to the consumer and not rot and spoil. Exactly. Because believe it or not, almost 45% of the world's fruit and vegetables are thrown out wow. in waste. Yeah. It's, it's, and when I got wind of that stat, and that's, that's not a made up stat, that's factual. Uh, you do your research. So if we get into, and that links to climate change. Uh, there was a big UN report that came out last summer, and one of the key areas they really talk about is improving the science around food distribution and food and cutting back food waste. Because yes. when you, because that if if you're wasting food, you have more arable land, more farming, yeah, more outputs, yep. more issues that, that lead to, you know, climate change and 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 all the things that are yes. terrible. So this is great. This business allows me to. To, to forge entrepreneurially into into this world of ag science yeah and so it was so funny i was in january i was at a conference in niagara falls where i have a partner um an ex-banker a terrific guy named uh, terrence terrence park and uh we were at the uh, ontario fruit and vegetable convention <laughs> so here i was mr gaming horse racing gaming executive walking around talking to all these um folks that work in the uh the fruit and vegetable sector and you right. know this is a this is high agriculture so there's a lot of farmers and, yeah but they're terrific people yeah um, there's a bit of an overlap actually because horse racing believe yes. it or not, is a huge component of farmers. horse racing the actual the supply side of horse racing i.e people that breed and train and yes on the horses they're farmers as well and i always i always re- particularly when i was at woodbine i spent because remember woodbine was an operator whereas side games and sport tech in my career path was more of the 
supplier side technology. But so at Woodbine, I, I'd spent a lot of time getting to know dealing with some of the horse people as, as they're known. Yeah. But terrific people down to earth, you yeah. know, very transparent, feel very comfortable in that environment. But so, yeah, so now I'm, um, I'm in the middle of uh, this startup, but uh, my partner is, and also they're on the share register, will be on the share register, uh, is University of Guelph for a few points, which is great. And yeah. I'm hoping to also look uh, and acquire other technologies with, with the university and become a real good partner of the University of Guelph. Uh, and build uh, what what should be a successful business and raise some capital. Uh, there's a few things we have to do just to get the business on the right footing, and then we're going to go and aim to do a, a kind of st- a strategic venture capital round of, of several million to get the, the business really rolling and you know get some good people hired and stuff. But it, it'll start with parents and I doing. We have a, we have a business office set up down the road, right where I live. And unfortunately, COVID's put everything. In a bit Made of a, more challenge. Yeah, yes. we, we were just starting to roll back in January, February, and then this thing hit. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff we were wanting to do is has paused it, but we're we're getting back to. He's he's actually back in Korea. He's a dual citizen. My partner trying to sell his his apartment. He's in Seoul, but now he's trying to Seoul, as you probably read uh, know, is 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 doing has done very well with well, COVID. Yeah, so he's not. He's not not at the moment any any rush to get back. Uh, yes, <laughs> but we uh, we should be back working on this thing full steam August September. Well, that's awesome. No, and that's yeah. that really really great opportunity. And and again, aligning your real you know sort of core purpose with your your activities, right? Like that's a that's a really great thing. So yeah, and my uh, my wife Tina and my kids, you know, they're hoping I succeed, uh, and, and mostly because they know it's kind of a you know it's an important industry to be involved in. Yeah, uh, you know, which, uh, which again, not to be disparaging in any way to my former. Career. Oh, of course not. No, of course not. And and the gaming, gaming entertainment, and a lot mm-hmm. of people. And uh, there, for our leaders, many of you will not understand how significant horse racing is in the world. It is enormous. And so the horse racing was kind of mismanaged for a number of decades in, yeah. in Canada, yeah. so that there that lost a generation at least of of fans and and but around the world it's enormous so that's one of the reasons as well why andrew was on the plane all the time because europe is so much bigger asia is so much bigger so yeah yeah i did a correct correct and our our both side games and sport tech through the technology parimutuel tow technology business that's that ultimately managed uh yeah we had customers globally so yeah uh, I've been to Asia many times, different yeah. parts of Asia, all through Europe, bit a bit of South America, not too much, but, and, and I've seen most parts of the U S yeah. one way or the other. So definitely, uh, I don't feel like I, uh, I've missed much from a travel perspective and, you know, and, uh, if we just have to go RVing around Canada for the rest of our years, you know, I'll, I'll be good with that. <laughs> so Andrew, if you look back, you know, as you went from like a university student to a, you know, owner, value creator in the full-time world. What did you need to change about yourself? Well, um, I mean, organization's a big component, I think, of any any business or any success, whether right. you're for for-profit business, a, a not-for-profit. I think good management, yeah, a big component is organization. And right. You have to kind of, uh, you can't be, uh, I, I know people succeed by, you know, that that you would, wouldn't strike as, you know, highly organized, but I think having organizational skill is 
Definitely. It could sound cliche, but I think it's important. And I remember, you know, student works, you know, with the day timer. Yeah. Right out, you know. We were early to it. Like now we're yeah. obviously way more progressed than that. But yeah. that was yeah. that was leading edge, you know. Yeah, the, it you was. Know, back, it really back was decades ago. And yeah. Having your day set up and your week and what your goals were and 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 it really worked. I mean, mm-hmm. it really um it really helped you trying to figure out what you had to focus on. Because yeah. uh, that stuff was, you know, student works was coming at you left and right, you know, yeah. trying to manage up to 20, 25, you know, employees, painters, you know, yeah. dealing with customers, some happy, some not happy. Yeah. Uh, trying to train people, trying to sell, trying to motivate, trying to, you know, manage your inventory and your, your suppliers and get beer for your crews on Friday on time <laughs> before they revolted on you. No, so organization was... Uh, and I probably looking back as a kid, that was in my house, it was chaos you know, growing up. Uh, I wouldn't say I grew up in a, a highly organized uh, environment. So yeah. that was a skill that was learned. Yes. Works for sure. I think also, you know, just learning to deal with people, both on the customer side, but you're, you know, your employees, you're I always had in, in every year I had a foreman or, or person yeah. to be, you know, Principally managing the operational side, even though yeah. I was still ultimately responsible for seeing it. And I would focus more on the sales and marketing. Yeah. Because you needed both, right? But um, you know, and learning to manage people, uh, motivate people. And in in, in in these cases, uh, in the student works environment, as as all your listeners know, they're really your they're your peer group. Yeah, for they sure. might be a year or two younger. Yeah. In some cases they'll be a year or two older, but and that's not easy when you're 19, 18, 19, 20 to, you know, so those, those are skills you, you have to kind of develop. And I think, you know, some people are better at it than others. I was probably on the better than average side, maybe because I had nine brothers and sisters and I had to figure out how to, you know, <laughs> you know, navigate my way around uh, my own siblings, I believe, um, develop some skills that way early quite early on in life, but. So, and again, it sounds cliche, but people or management skills is, is, is something that you take away and you, you don't forget. The other thing, and I, I know this as, as I worked my way up the corporate ladder and became more and more responsible, and obviously in these companies, you, you become very, especially public companies, you're very financially focused. So right. even though I don't have an MBA or, and I took, you know, accounting at some uh, fairly basic level at Cornell, I learned the profit and loss of how to run a business from student works. Right. I mean, I, it wasn't the tidiest, it was a handwritten kind of daily spreadsheet of yeah. what I knew every day, Yeah. you know, what our job was from a revenue perspective, what my inputs were in terms of the cost of sales, Yeah. how we were doing on, you know, on our labor, on our materials, what, what was I going to make? For them? Yeah. You know, obviously what was going to the franchisor. So I, I was a very, um, and I w- I've told this story many times in my business career to particularly managers that I'm trying to get more financially focused within the company. Yeah. Uh, that you gotta, you don't have to understand the balance sheet per se. And yeah. it's nice to know if, if you get to the certain level, but uh, and sometimes you have to know it. Obviously, as CEO of a company, you definitely need to know balance sheet. But yeah, you know, you generally you have great CFO and accountants around you at that point, but you've got to understand the PL. For sure. And student works and that business experience taught me that uh, inside and out. That's just, that's just part of being a good business person, right? Yeah. I mean, 
If you're in the for-profit business, that is. <laughs> well, even if you even if you look at a not-for-profit, you need yeah, to actually true. manage your, you know, yeah. drive revenue, you know, to, to get a great result. And part of it is as well as what I want leaders to, to hear is, is how accountable Andrew is. Like mm-hmm. how accountable he was at 18, 19, 20 and how accountable he still is. Like you've got to take that responsibility on. You know, it's yep. like, hey, I'm going to manage this. I'm going to know here, I'm, you know, what every decision makes. Here's the money coming in. Here's the money coming out. How do I manage this so that, you know, we can get the result? And again, profit's not a bad word. Profit's a great word because without profit, the business fails. <laughs> so I have a great story. It's just, I can, it's student works um, is in my first year. Uh, so I did five years, as, as, as you recall, and I was my franchise, and I don't think, Chris, you have it set up this way anymore, no. but I was Scarborough, kind of Scarborough, Greater Scarborough, West Toronto, yeah. no, East Toronto. Uh, I was industrial condominium uh, manager, so I could yeah. do anything, and I could go bid on townhome complexes, apartment garages, mm-hmm. one of the business lines that uh, we hadn't done many previously, but I decided it was, it was, it was worth pursuing was spraying underground garages. garages. Yeah. So I got this job at the at this property, uh, like it's just at Don Valley and 401. I, I can, I, I, the name will come to me. But the ma- the property manager and all these condominium corporations had property managers, professional managers that manage the properties. This one guy, his name was Bob Bainbridge, and he uh, and I underpriced it in reality. I got yeah. it because you know. So and he would come down every day, and we'd be spraying away myself, and I was actually doing the spraying with my two key guys or three key guys. It wasn't, and it was, it was not an easy job to do because we were learning as we went. And yeah. But, but he'd come down and he'd look and we'd have the pails of paint and we'd be spraying out of them with the sprayer and all that. And he'd be like, Hey, Andrew, I don't see how you're going to make any money. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wouldn't give him the satisfaction. I'd say, no, no, Bob, we're good. Like this is, I'm, you know, this is working out great. We're in he's like, well, are you sure? That's a lot of material. Right? And well, I can't remember what the price of the job was, but. Yeah. Sure. In reality, we weren't making money. And I'm pretty sure I lost money on that job. But yeah. I'll tell you what, I stuck my nose into it and I, I never gave him the satisfaction of letting him know I was defeated or really. And he respected that. Right. And sure enough, for the next four years, I got a ton of jobs from Bob. And believe me, I made my money back from Bob on some of the other jobs that I it wasn't just garages. Yet. <laughs> yeah, I, but you know what? I, I earned his respect. Yes, just getting stuck in and being on the front of the uh, and being uh, accountable, you know. right? And it's funny because I, I I remember that name Bob Bainbridge, and I go, that's probably why because you had a lot of business with Bob. That's right. Yeah, that's funny. So. Yeah, and he and he referred me to some other property managers. It was sort of a you know it wasn't that big a community, but he, yeah, uh, he was a great reference. He helped me get some other jobs. As a result of that, and I'm I'm convinced it was largely because he would come down there and go, "This this kid, what? he's got no quitting him." And he, he he's got no. <laughs> yeah, and and by the way, that actually is something that you know business owners or or people who are looking to hire contractors want. Hey, he's got no quit. She's got no quit. They're going to see yeah. this through. They're going to be accountable. They're going to walk through this, and that's what they want because because again, a lesser contractor will walk off the job. Oh, I made a mistake, or yeah. or you know th- those sorts of things, and. So what about habits? What what key habits would, would a leader want to steal from you, uh, Andrew? You have to have a sense of humor. Uh, and when you're managing people, like, don't take, your tel- don't take yourself too seriously. Right. People, you know, and then never, at least this has been my, my methodology, never act like you're the boss. Yeah. I mean, there are times people know you're the boss. Exactly. People know that ultimately the decision is going to be yours. 
but don't flaunt it and don't mm. be autocratic. And uh, particularly in this day and age, right, where the world is so upside down and yeah. just, and we see these autocratic leaders politically and the nonsense that's going on. So yeah, the last thing people want to do, I think, in any work environment is come in, you know, and, and live in fear of their boss or mentor. Be a mentor, be a friend. Uh, obviously, and I've had to fire people. Um, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I I, I once had to in one of in the, the business we had in Holland, up in the Hague. I had to go in one day and downsize the the operation by fifty percent. I was probably fifteen people I had to let go in one yeah. day, and it, yeah. it was a horrible thing. But the business just it, it was so irrational. This was when I had just moved to Europe, and I had to look at all the pieces and yeah. see where we can make improvements and changes. But so look, you're not always going to be everyone's friend but you know generally speaking try and uh, try and mentor people uh, have a sense of humor get people laughing and keeping perspective right because most people remember they're going to go home to stressful you know lives they're probably going to have young families and they're going to be worrying about paying bills and yeah. particularly my god in this environment right now yeah i really feel for these parents that have you know small young younger kids and they're sitting around in homes that are cramped and, yeah Kids aren't going to school and, you know, maybe, maybe income's been uh, eroded or at risk. It's terrible. But so, yeah, be really, just be a good person. You know, it's, it's not, it's not hard to be a good person <laughs> and treat people decently. Um, yeah. yeah. And might sound cliche, but yeah, treat, treat others the way you'd want to be treated. You know, and For sure. I think uh, that's something I learned from my dad. My dad was a terrific, decent guy and he yeah. was, um, no one didn't know everyone liked my dad and I used to clean his real estate offices. That was one of my high, high school jobs. He, he was a real estate broker, worked his way up and he had two offices, one in Thornhill, one in Richmond Hill. So I used to go in around nine o'clock, uh, a couple nights a week after I got my license and do the cleaning. And I'd see him talking to all the managers and the, and the sales reps. I, he would just be that guy that could have a coffee and he could just get everyone feeling good about what they were doing and yeah. trying to make them feel better about a tough day where they had lost a deal or didn't yeah. get a listing and stuff like that so yeah that's one habit for sure i think you should you should try and cultivate uh, having having a sense of humor and treating people decently yeah i mean organizational skill we talked about that that's yeah. that's a key that's a key habit I, yeah i think for sure and what have you done what have you done andrew to to keep learning uh what, what have you done around that over your career so that's a good question i i, I think i've i've not been very good there um, okay I really don't think I've, I mean, I read like, mm -hmm. you know, fiction and I, yeah. and I read the paper. Yeah. I, I read my newspaper, physical, not digital. I, I get, I look at stuff digitally all day. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but I am still an old school. I get my globe and mail and I, right. I go front to back. Uh, right. I want to be aware of the world. Um, and that, that actually has helped me in, in business. I mean, it's good to walk into a room of people, uh, customers, other other professionals you're dealing with and know what's going on in the world. Right. I think that's important. Uh, Absolutely, I do too. So, and the paper the paper will do that or your or your digital yeah. format. Don't look at fake news. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> real 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 solid journalism, whatever however you define that. But I think we all know general we're talking about. One of the, one of the reasons I think I'm not that strong there is I in in law, uh, not that I practice law. I I still maintain my license by the way. I pay the law society about a thousand bucks a year to call myself a lawyer but as i like to say i'd be the last lawyer i'd hire they're constantly doing you know ongoing education um, yeah. and, and and i don't I, not not that i should because i'm not practicing law but i always feel a bit of guilt i don't read i don't do a lot of self-help 
reading. It's just, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just hasn't been my thing. I've, 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 I've read some books along sure. the way. You know, mm-hmm. Some of the great entrepreneurs. I've got Branson's book behind me somewhere there. And, uh, yeah. you know, a few things. And it's not that I don't enjoy reading uh, stuff, but uh, I think as I, as I got up the chain, the food chain and corporate executive management, you know, you, reading about business as, as a, as a distraction doesn't help me. Right. I, yeah. I just found it just brought my mind back to business. Whereas right. if I did not, you know, fiction uh, or reading, you know, papers about politics and arts and science, arts and science and technologies and stuff like that. I also think where I probably have been weak. Um, remember, I'm in the generation that really had no internet when we started. Well, yes. Yeah. To internet starting to, you know, exploded. Yeah. To, to, to blackberries, yeah. to smartphones, to whoop social media so we even to be perfectly honest speaking now to the, the 20 year old generation yeah listening is um we've had to kind of try and figure this stuff out as we as we've gone for sure um, and i think i've been okay but looking back i probably should have been more on the front fit on some of this stuff but i'm not devoid of of using the technologies and stuff don't get yeah. me wrong but i um there's probably more i should have done or could have done so and in this in this world that's becoming so technology dependent, uh, don't underestimate don't underestimate that. I would say. And for our leaders, the world's just going to keep changing. So yeah. you know, certainly we've experienced a massive change over the last thirty years, and it will yeah. just keep changing and changing and changing. So don't resist, and and not don't that resist. Andrew has resisted, you know, but just say, okay, and it's going to be different and it's going to be different. And I'm just going to stay with it, you know, cause, cause certainly we have some peers who like resisted and just, you know, and then they really, they completely disengaged, you know, and they really get challenged because of yeah. their limited capacity to participate in the world because it's so technology based. Yeah. So one final question, Andrew, when you think of a leader of tomorrow, what comes to mind? Well, look, yeah, let's just take the context of what's happening in front of us, right? COVID. Black Lives Matter, activism, any leader in any organization is going to have to be really on the ball to the social issues sure. and know how to shake those through, not just for the sake of saying, you know, we're in compliance, but actually yep. taking what is relevant out there and, and is going to become a huge component of, of how we run our lives and our, and our organizations and climate change too, right? Yeah. Because this stuff is... It's going to shape how we live and the and the generations, generations after us. Yeah. So I think uh, any leader in any organization needs to be, yeah, sure. If it's a for-profit organization, focus on trying to develop your business and and return value to your stakeholders, your shareholders, your owners, whatever. But don't lose sight of the fact uh, that you have these social components that are going to be, I think, very important to how you shape your organization, how you, your philosophies, how you move forward. Um, and I think that's usually important. I think technology, as we just talked about, um, making sure you're, you and your organization, you as an individual, but the organization is, and it will, it will be in, in some part, in some uh, component, uh, depending on the, the nature of the business, but be on top of that, embrace it and, and stay with it. Because as you as you as you pointed out, Chris, it's it's still going to move. I mean, yeah, hard to imagine we'd have the change of the last thirty years again, but sure we will. 
if you if you read it, it's it's going to get faster. Yeah, the, the change, the rate of change, you know, and that's something that we've seen. You know, the rate of change is getting faster, and it will just continue to get faster. Is all that I'm reading, and 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 I think you're right. Like there's there's a growing social awareness that is just growing, and it's just mm-hmm. going to get more and more important to everybody. More more just important. because as as we see that really in many ways. You know, I don't, I don't, I always don't like to go back so much, but you know, Hey, you know, it's, it's hard not to say that, that there's been some mismanagement, especially mismanagement of resources and this whole yeah. sense of, Oh yeah, there's just more world to go burn up. There's more oil to, to go get. And, and yeah. you know, again, there's, you know, I don't want to judge anybody who did whatever. It's just like looking forward, we've got to be more conscious. And, and also even as leadership, you're talking about autocratic leaders that you would have autocratic, more autocratic leaders in the past who, again, would, you know, do this, do that. Now, again, that just won't fly. You know, people won't will leave people. Yeah. So it's, it's the same thing. There's a, there's a shaping of where we're headed. And uh, I think it's a better world, uh, but it's, there's, there's never been a time where we need more leaders and really strong leaders. And right yeah. Now. And people that, yes. And people that are, uh, have a sense of social activism and, um, yeah. and being in there and, you know, and we're really trying to, to all of us, uh, and particularly people of, of privilege, like, like we are, yeah. you know, kind of, um, change our, change our views. And my, my daughter, uh, uh by the way, is, is, is quite a strong social activist and she's helping me helping our family, become you know, more educated and more yes. aware to the issues and the privilege that we've, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that has helped shape us, um, and, and then the injustice that out there. So no, I think all that shakes back through to, to, to developing leaders of, of, of tomorrow. And, uh, it's, it's hugely important. I think also the last thing is, um, you know, get balance in your life. Uh, if you're going to be a good leader, um, yeah. you know, try and find a balance between your work, your family, your personal interests, yeah. you know, don't just make your life about work, 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 work. It, it's not, you might get away with it for five or ten years, but yeah. believe me, over the long haul, um, yeah. yeah, it'll it'll take its toll. It'll take its toll on, on you personally, on your health, on your family. Uh, so so keep balance, stay yeah. healthy. Yeah, you know, do things that you enjoy, do things with your partner, your spouse, your kids uh, that you know that are that are not work, <laughs> obviously. And, exactly. And enjoy them. And life life goes by quickly, as Chris and I can tell you. Like we're. Yeah. We're getting along. We're we're in our we're I'm I I see it again as I'm in my final third. Yeah, yeah. Already, and uh, you know, and I've had a great run, and yeah, and I have no regrets. But yeah, you you, you want you do you don't want to get to this final third and be unhealthy. Yeah, exactly. And have, and have you know health issues, which which you see, and you know, and then really go, oh, okay, I've worked hard to have all this, and now, wow, can't even really. Enjoy it. Like, and even more, like, you know, Andrew, you know, you know, you know, our you know, audio podcast you can't tell, but Andrew's fit, he's healthy, you know, strong relationship, great relationship with his kids. And so, you know, that's that matters, right? So, yeah. so it's like, okay, hey, I don't just have a financial base, I've got a family, I've got health, I've got you know, relationships. And that's really what it's about. You know, it can't just be one thing, you know. Right. Um, and I, I think a lot of times, you know, Andrew and I at 20 would have been, you know, mostly career focused. You know, but seeing, you know, and again, not, not, but, but mostly career focused. And that's the big worry and concern. And of course it's a big concern, but having all the, the, the balls being juggled is really critical. So. And um, you can't see this, but I've shown Chris over Zoom, my <laughs> student works, uh, marketing 
folder from 1987 or 88. And there's a picture of young Andrew there. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that guy. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'll do the testimonial with, just holding this up. <laughs> yeah, do that. Will that work? <laughs> that's perfect. Uh, well, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today on The Leaders of Tomorrow. Um, you have an awesome day. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Cheers. Hey leaders, I hope you enjoyed this episode. By now, you are aware that we work with ambitious students every single year to not only help them run their first successful business, but to further their development as a leader and give them an unfair advantage in the future over their counterparts. It's why starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down the path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. And I can't wait to see you on the other side.